0: This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. All right, so TK, I called you, uh, actually I didn't call you, I just scheduled this interview with you. And I did it in this moment of inspiration where I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a great conversation. Me and TK are going to kind of go at it. We disagree a little bit. And I was really feeling it. I was imagining what like the greatest podcast episode ever. And then I went and opened up my calendar. We we should have just recorded it in the moment because I opened up my calendar invite today. Like, okay, me and TK are talking. What are we going to talk about? And I read the little description I put in there and I was like, what was I thinking? what was this? Why was this supposed to be so good? I don't remember that moment that I was in. So (laughs) (laughs) we can go, Uh, we can go anywhere with it. But what, what I, what I had originally thought was I want to talk about this incredibly annoying habit you have of, (laughs) (laughs) of finding the most unreputable, crazy, ridiculous, badly formatted sources and digging into them and trying to find something valuable out of them. And, and what, what is the decision-making process for determining when a book, an article, a website, a video, when it's just not worth it, when it's just too crappy um, and when you should move on. Cause you, you seem obsessed with this idea that there's secret hidden knowledge in all sorts of places, (laughs) especially, especially places that no one else would be looking. And and, And I, and I just feel like you don't value your time enough. I don't know. <laughs> where, where should we start with this? So Give me your best start- defense. Give me your best defense for reading websites that are in all bold and caps and on like a light background. <laughs>
1: Hey, we should probably start with me checking to see if this is an intervention or a podcast conversation. (laughs) 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 We'll see how it ends up. (laughs) You're like worried about how I use my time. So you had to get me on the air to uh, confront me. <laughs> I can't get through to you one-on-one. So maybe if I get you on the podcast, maybe if I set up uh... a, a
0: fake website with a picture of like a crazy old
1: cat, <laughs> <laughs> a cat.
0: No, I mean, honestly, honestly, what goes through your mind when you pick out books? I mean, I remember way back in the day, we would go to a bookstore and you would pick up the like craziest looking book you could find. And you would and you would be five pages in and you'd be like, Yeah, there's nothing good in here. I'm gonna I better keep going. You know? What what is the process for you of, <laughs> of finding new ideas? And and when do you say this there's nothing good here? I'm moving on.
1: Oh man. Well, as I get older and free time, solitude becomes harder to come by, I get a little bit more selective and and what I choose to read and how much time I give to uh, a bad book. I mean, for the first time in my life, about a year ago, I didn't finish a book. I was reading a book. I was about four chapters in and I thought to myself, I'm just not liking this book. But I, I almost had this dogmatic commitment to just finish it for the sake of finishing it. And I, and I gave myself the permission to not finish it. So I am getting wait, a lot wait, better. Hold
0: on. I, you're telling me prior to that, you have finished every book that you've
1: started. Yep. Do you, do you regret that? No, man, I I have no regrets in in my pursuit of knowledge. You know why? Because so many of those
0: books that you started, like turned
1: out to not be good, right? Yeah. But you know what? That's kind of like business ideas. It's like, if you ask an entrepreneur, if you say to an entrepreneur, you've started four businesses and the first three of them fell, do you have any regrets? I'm sure they're going to tell you something like, Yeah, but the experience was so valuable. I learned so much. But hold on.
0: They walk away – when you figure out that it's going nowhere, the quicker you walk (laughs) away, the better
1: though, right, in business? I hear what you're saying. But (laughs) some of the paragraphs and and, and quotes and excerpts from books that have radically altered my life have come from books I'd never feel confident recommending because – Maybe the books are bad, or maybe when I finished reading it, I thought to myself, ah, man, that dude could have just written a blog post and been done with it, you know? But somewhere in the fourth paragraph of chapter five, it just hit me right in the gut where I needed to be hit. And I was like, oh my gosh, my life will be forever changed. So I mean, I'm sure you've experienced that too. So
0: yeah, but what do you feel about the opportunity cost of that? Like, okay, you found that one thing in a 300 page book, the time and energy that you could have devoted to something else maybe you would have gotten a lot more than that one paragraph that you happen to stumble upon
1: i mean that that's a possibility with any kind of choice you make i don't i'm not a paranoid type type of dude so that's not something i spend a lot of time worrying about because that's true of pretty much any book you read but that's not an experience i have a lot sure i've been heavily impacted by some books that are so crappy i wouldn't recommend them but I think it's more likely the case that I've been impacted by some pretty awesome good books that maybe I couldn't recommend because of the kinds of prejudices people tend to have against authors that aren't famous, aren't glamorous, or who look weird, or... Who have bad formatting or something along those lines. I think that may be a, a a topic of conversation more worth pursuing. Because for the most part, I I pick books that I love. I would say 90% of the books I've chosen to read have been really good to me, even if they're not good to other people. And I've just never given a lot of thought to things like, what does this guy do for a living? Who's this guy to be teaching me XYZ? Right, I just right. care about well, I just yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, yeah. Okay,
0: ahead. so hold on, because I, because I'm totally with you that I don't, I don't think like the author, what they do, what their personal life is like, uh, matters to me, and I don't think it. Like, yeah. if the ideas are good, the ideas are good. They stand on their own. What, what right. I don't get, and first of all, you're not being nearly <laughs> confrontational enough. You're being too nice, and you're making me look like a jerk. Because I'm trying, I'm trying to trump, trump up this like attack on you, and I'm hoping that like you will pretend to attack me, and we can, we can play this up. I mean, come on! You're a, you, when you were a kid, you were a fan of the WWF. Uh, you know, it's, oh, it's all 100%. it's all drama. We gotta we gotta make it like we have a real beef here. So, um, feel free to attack <laughs> me. Okay, so Let's yeah, see it. that that tells you everything you need to know about our personalities and relationships. When <laughs> I say feel free to attack me, like a permission. Um, okay, so <laughs> so it's it's really not in my self interest to point out. Uh, I think the obvious, um, misallocation of time that you have going on here with some of these books, because <laughs> what, what you have always enabled me to do is outsource to you. And I do this with other people as well. Uh, the discovery process, which can be really, really cumbersome. So, so many times if we're having a conversation about some topic, you'll go find a bunch of books or articles and then you'll come to me and you'll send me like two paragraphs. you will be like, man, read this. This is really good. You don't need to worry about the rest of the book there's nothing else good in there, but this part is amazing. And I'm like, I get all the benefits, uh, without having to to wade through the crap or you'll send me a video and you'll be like, do not start it at the beginning. Fast forward to the 17. Cause I'm, I'm so afraid if you start at the beginning, it will be so bad. You'll turn it off. But if you just fast forward to the 17 minute mark and watch two and a half minutes, it will be life changing. And the question I always have is, and I'll go watch it. And it's usually something really interesting. And I'm always thinking to myself, how did he stick with it (laughs) until it got to the 17 minute mark? Like what, isn't there, isn't there like a flight mechanism in your brain that's like, okay, I've been on this website for 10 minutes. I've seen nothing but like flash animation. It's something, you know, it's it's geocities.com and it's got, you know, all caps and like 15 different font styles scrolling down the page. Maybe I should abandon this one. Like when when do you say I'm quitting? When do you cut the cord?
1: Oh, man, it's it's so tough. You're making me think about some of these things uh, maybe for the first time. But I think I approach knowledge, the pursuit of knowledge in just a different way. And I don't know if I'm as practical as, as a lot of people are. I, I consider myself a, a psychonaut in, in many ways, right, where the concept of a psychonaut is a, a psychonaut is – to the realm of inner space, what an astronaut is to the realm of outer space. They, they approach the pursuit of knowledge in an experimental sort of way. I, I, I like to imagine myself a detective, if you will. I'm looking for mysteries. I'm looking to unravel secrets. I'm looking to find cool things that are buried in the rubble. And when, when I when I pick up books, it's because there's something about that book, whether it be the author, their story, the cover, the title, what the table of contents or the back of the book promises, something that I saw when I flipped through the book or a recommendation from a trusted friend, there's something that intrigues me. And I, I like to investigate and I like to search out. And when, when I find that one life-changing nugget of wisdom, when I find that really cool idea that allows me to tinker with my perception of reality, it's it's as it's, it's, it's as if it were worth all the trouble. So, so one example of this, a crazy little book that I recommended to you was a book called Uncle Ramsey's Little Book of Demons. <laughs> and <laughs> and the author of it is a guy who goes by the name of Uncle Ramsey. Yeah, see that and, right and, and, there.
0: That right there. I would say, <laughs> okay, who is going to go by the name Uncle Ramsey? Like, if you're going by that name and writing books, something's probably wrong with you. Your content is probably just ridiculous. Like, that is enough for me to pass. <laughs>
1: Right, right, right. Okay. But so that book, and I recommended it to you, and and you can testify to this. There's a lot in that book to be disagreed with. But the subtitle of of the book is called The Positive Advantages of the Personification of Life's Problems. And the, the premise of the book is that our brains evolved to be so large and powerful, not merely because we're tool making creatures, but because we have because we we have this history or this tendency if you will of engaging the impersonal aspects of life as if they are personal or 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 because of relationships and 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 the book explores this idea of interacting with your problems and other another seemingly objective elements of the universe as if they had the feature of personality as if they possessed consciousness and he talks about how Even if that idea isn't true, just approaching life in that way metaphorically can give rise to some pretty cool, interesting experiences and can allow you to sort of experience a lot of your creative challenges in a way that's far more malleable and humorous than we normally experience them. Now, I I suppose you could say, TK, you didn't have to read that book to find that out. You, you, You know, your mom probably told you something like that when you were six years old. And maybe that is the case. Maybe that is the case. I'm not sure I have to think about that. But when, when I read books, there's something that that grabs my interest. I like to dig in. And when, when I have that aha moment where where I, I, I read a story or a parable or an aphorism that just makes my heart sing, it, the, the, the intellectual high is worth all of the trouble that I went through it. And I have no sense of wasting my time. Right now I'm reading, um, a graphic novel called the sandman and it's about i'm reading the omnibus edition of that and it's about a couple of thousand pages long and you and 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 all of my colleagues make fun of me for having that book for for reading that comic book it's like dude how are you using your time but it makes okay, me okay come alive. in
0: fairness in fairness uh i actually like I've read a few graphic novels in the last few months. I've actually really enjoyed it. I want to read more and the the content looks fascinating to me. It's mostly the fact that when we go somewhere on like a business trip and you show up, you have a checked bag and you have like this gigantic books in there for like a two day trip. And it's like, it's not, you know, it's like a gigantic comic book in there. And it's like, you needed to check a bag for that, you know? (laughs)
1: <laughs> I need to read that stuff before I go to bed, man. It, it makes my dreams. Okay, great. so, so uh, tell me about
0: your process of picking what books to read because it seems to me, thinking like an economist, especially if you always – until recently, you have always finished every book you've started – then that puts a very, very high premium on picking the right books, right? To me, so so if I know that the cost of any book that I pick is going to be very high because I basically have to finish it, or I just, if I know myself and I know that I'm going to finish it, it means picking a good book is much more important. Uh, what is your process? Like, how do you find Uncle Ramsey's Book of Demons? How do you find the books that you find and what makes you decide this is what I'm going to read next. Because several times I've talked with you and you've said, Hey, check it out. I'm going to read you the title of a book that I just came across, you know, the temptation to exist or some, some, <laughs> some, some title, you know, and then you'll be like, and you'll, and you'll have with so much confidence, you'll say, this is the book I'm going to read next. And you don't even know anything about it yet. How do you discover, how do you discover these books and what makes you decide this is, you've got to read this. And, and, and like, do you ever pass on
1: a book? Oh, I I, I pass on, on thousands of books every day. That's hard for um, me to believe. <laughs> they scream like the ones I recommend I walk- to
0: you. Then you, <laughs> <Right>. you somehow,
1: <laughs> somehow I was put on the back burner. I, I think I've passed on 95% of the books you've asked me to read <laughs> for business purposes.
0: You'd be such a better person.
1: <laughs> You know, I'm pretty irresponsible with my reading and and I'm proudly irresponsible with it. I don't I don't read the things I think I ought to read. I I read the things that allow me to explore my own curiosities and and my own questions. And thankfully, I, I had parents who never discouraged me from reading what I want to read. And so I've had a love for reading ever since I was a kid. So. For me, I base a lot of it on a combination of intuition, feeling, curiosity, a sense of wonder. For me, philosophy is a form of play. I I, I don't take it that seriously. I, I think it's important. And so I, I take it seriously in the sense of I regard it as a significant and important activity. But I don't take it seriously in the sense of feeling like it has to be dense or boring or I have to be very responsible about this and, oh my gosh, I... Can't read this book because, by golly, that's much too fun and frivolous. I ought to be reading this because uh, perhaps I would be a much more respectable human being. I think if you want to be interesting, you have to be interested. If you want to be fascinating, you've got to be fascinated. If you want to be engaging, you got to be engaged. And so, but my do first priority is. You have to be to
0: fascinated be- by everything? I mean, <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, but, but it, <laughs> seriously, in really practical terms, Yeah. yeah. I I get, I get the, the concept of being irresponsible that it's like play, but, but how do you actually, like, I'm just curious, how do you actually come across the titles that you end up reading? Is it, is it, you buy a book on Amazon and it's others who bought this book also bought this? Is it word of mouth? Somebody gives it to you. Is it that you're researching a topic online and you come across titles or it's footnotes? What's the main way that you get, you know, books added to your
1: queue? So when I read a book that I like, I tend to look at the footnotes to figure out what that author researched. So there's a book that I I checked out called The Stolen, it's called Stolen Life, and it's, it's subtitled The Social Theory of Magic. And it's a blend of sociology, anthropology, philosophy and psychology. It talks a lot about the history of magic, how magical thinking has played a role in um, our understanding of self and the way societies are shaped and structured and so forth. And it's really, really interesting to me. And so I, I looked in the bibliography for that book, and there are just hundreds of books that that went into the research for this one. And so I, I looked up some of those books to see if any of those looked interesting to me, and there were a few. And so I, I ordered those. And, and of course, I, I look into them to see what the table of content says. I, I, I try to read excerpts from Amazon to see if it appeals to me. Also, another way I look up books is if I read something by an author and I have an enjoyable experience, I may follow up with that author and try them out again to, to see what else they have to offer. Or maybe I'm just interested in some philosophical question. So there, there was a, a two-year period in my life where I was totally preoccupied with the principle of sufficient reason because I was obsessed with trying to disprove the first premise of the Kalam cosmological argument, which is everything which begins to exist has a cause. And so every book that I came across that was about causation and that offered the promise of illuminating my ideas or expanding my concept of what it meant for one thing to be the cause of another, I would just pick that up and absorb it. Now, for two years of my life, I would read books like J.L. Mackey's Cement of the Universe and There were tons of other subjects that i was completely ignoring i wasn't reading about economics i wasn't reading about history of course history would come up when i would study the history of people's thinking about the concept of causation but there was a ton of stuff i was completely ignoring because i was obsessively focused on that but even then it wasn't discipline it wasn't a sense of what i ought to be studying it was just these are the sets of curiosities i'm obsessed with at the time and that's driving the kinds of books that I read, but but you know what? The, the the real answer is, and I don't know if this answer is very friendly in a non-mystical context. But my relationship with books is, I think it's quite interesting. I have a relationship with books that's unlike my relationship with anything else in the world. Um, every woman I've ever dated has accused me of loving my books more than her, and they've all been right, and they've all been <laughs> right for a reason. They've all been right for a reason. There's an energy that there's an energy of connection that I feel with books. It's almost as if books are living creatures for me. And th- there's a line from the movie Hurricane that I really resonate with where he says, Sometimes we don't choose the books we read, but the books we read choose us. I, I genuinely feel as if I've been chosen by every book. And in fact, speaking of books, there's a book about George Washington Carver by Glenn Clark, and it's called The Man Who Spoke With Flowers, and there was a story in that book of a scientist who who was just surprised to know how Dr. Carver was able to extract so many creative uh, uses from these plants. And he says, how do you know these things? And Dr. Carver said, well, the the flowers, the flowers speak to me, and they tell me. And he says, what do you mean the, the, the flowers speak to you? And he says, well, if you love a thing enough, it will tell you its secrets. And I feel like that's something I experience with books. I love books so much. I feel like they tell me their secrets. I feel like they whisper to me from the shelves and they say, read me. I promise you interesting pathways of thought. Consider me and I will walk you down an aisle of fascinating possibilities. And they rarely, rarely disappoint. Have I wasted my time reading books before? I honestly can't say I've Ever done that, do, and, and and that do, do all books? I, 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 do, I mean, like, do all I books call have no out regrets. to you? I, I truly have no regrets about anything I've ever read. Honestly, I have no regrets. I've never wasted my time reading ever.
0: Well, I mean, you can't, you know, you can't prove a counterfactual, but who knows? You could be twice, well, 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 you could be well, twice well, the man well, you well, you could
1: be twice the man you are today if you only would have right, read what right, right. I recommended. <laughs> I, I mean, th- that's possible, right? But but you could also say something like had you married a different woman you might be maybe twice as rich or something <laughs> like that and and maybe that's true but that doesn't mean i regret sure. the decision sure. so that i made totally, right i'm totally happy with
0: I my I mean seat. do you feel like all books are calling out to you read me or is it just a few no. like i like when when do you reject a book when you look at a book and say man, nah. <laughs> you know what makes you what makes you reject the books that i <laughs> that i keep telling you to read <laughs> no, I'm,
1: do, do you realize how awkward and tense this probably is for anyone who's listening? Dude, I, I want like...
0: to yeah, make this super awkward for everyone. Like, this is really just an excuse for me to be like, how come you won't read that book I told you to read?
1: like, man, what's wrong with Isaac, man? (laughs) Just, just let this dude be, let Let him be, man. It all,
0: it all seriousness. Um, I want to come back to that question in a second, but I don't want to forget this thought. I want to come back to, uh, books that you choose not to read and why. And then, um, also like just how much do you read in a typical week? And I have a couple other questions, but I want to make an observation first or comment on something that you said. You know, you said for that two-year period you were diving into um, books on causation. You were interested in the Kalam cosmological argument, et cetera, and to the detriment of other subject areas. And something that I found with really, really brilliant people um, that I found in common, and it sort of surprised me, is one they they're rarely hyper specialized. Um, so, I mean, you can be like a brilliant, I suppose, you know, engineer or physicist and be super, super specialized on that. But the types of sort of brilliant people who are overflowing with good ideas, they tend to be, uh, you know, sort of liberal arts interested in the very classic sense of the term. They're very broadly interested in a lot of fields, et cetera, and sort of have a broad, um, multiple layers of, you know, intelligence in different areas rather than super, super specialized narrowly. But at the same time, highly ignorant of certain subject areas in a way without shame or remorse because they're not trying. So I know people who are trying to be well-rounded, who are trying to be broad and who are trying to be like, well, I want to make sure I'm well-read and I'm not overly specialized. And so they're always trying to balance out all the areas of knowledge they read. I want to balance my fiction and my nonfiction. I want to balance history with economics, with sociology, with math, with physics, with and. I don't know that that's necessarily bad, but I think it, it lends to people being sort of uninteresting versus someone who is not highly specialized, but reckless in when they get the bug, they get curious about something, they'll follow it as long as that might take. And so, you know, there are, there are phases when you and I would talk where you were like, hey, I don't know any, like literally nothing about history. I know nothing about it at all. And you had no shame of that. You're like, you're going to have to like, Send me some stuff to read about history or economics, and then you dove in economics, got really interested in it. But you were aware that all the things you were giving your full attention to meant that you weren't giving attention to other areas that you were very ignorant of, and you weren't ashamed of that. And there's almost like a naive, like an innocence that's kind of beautiful, like an intellectual humility. Um, You know, I remember I met David Friedman one time, and and. The guy's really brilliant in so many areas. I mean, he's, he's writing on economics and he's not even a, you know, he's not an economics PhD. He's teaching, you know, law. He's writing fiction, all this stuff. And he was having a conversation. I don't remember the, the details, but, but the bottom line is there was something he sort of just admitted like he was completely ignorant of something in a different field, like history or something. And he was totally unashamed of it. It was just like, oh yeah, I haven't ever looked into that. I, I literally know nothing about it. Because he had no interest in trying to make sure that he was a well-rounded person who could look intelligent in any conversation. He's just like intellectually curious and will follow whatever ideas he finds wherever they take him. And I think that's an interesting way to kind of parse that debate about whether or not people should specialize in in areas that they're really good at or really love or whether they should try to be well-rounded. I think you should be curious and interested in everything but don't try to learn everything at once. Maybe, maybe be more irresponsible in what you're reading. And just, if, if you have a a year where all you're interested in is graphic novels, maybe, maybe just follow that. I don't know. There's something genuine there. Um, so that's just a commentary and I guess a compliment to you, but, but I, I do want to get back to this. How do you, when do you reject a book and say, I'm not going to read this? And why do you?
1: So th- this reminds me of a Q&A session with the Christian apologist, Ravi Zacharias. Someone once asked him, Ravi, why are you not an atheist? And he says, how about I answer a different question? How about I answer the question, why am I a Christian? And out of the reasons I give you for why I am a Christian, it'll be understandable as to why I am not anything else. I think in a similar way, why don't I tell you why I read what I do read, and I can make it clear from that explanation what I choose not to read and the why behind it. So for me, I as I mentioned earlier, I, I pursue my my curiosities, my passions. I'm seeking out answers to my questions, things that fascinate me. So one one of my interests as a result of you know these crazy pursuits is ethnobotany, which is the study of the relationship between plants and human cultures, between plant life and human cultures. This interest is rooted from uh, a year-long period where I just listened Rooted? to about—that's
0: a nice pun, by
1: the way. Uh, I didn't I'll even just, catch that.
0: I'll, I'll leave that one alone and let you branch branch off into other topics. Go ahead,
1: bud. Oh man, um, you annoy me like an insect when you interrupt. Was that was that, was that good? Was that good? That
0: was terrible, <laughs> even by my standards.
1: You're bugging me. I should have said that. Okay. <laughs> But anyway, so, okay, there was a year-long period where I, because of some conversations with friends about um, psychedelics, I, I listened to almost every lecture online by Terrence McKenna that I could find at that time, and he really made me interested in you know, understanding from the the standpoint of epistemology, altered states of consciousness. And altered states of consciousness is something I've always been interested in. I've always been interested in everything from neuro-linguistic programming, meditation, prayer, other kinds of exercises that claim to change our state of mind, whether it be from a naturalistic point of view or a spiritual point of view or a pharmaceutical point of view. And Terrence McKenna, you know, prompted some really interesting questions for me. And so in order for me to answer questions about epistemology, which was my real interest, there were some things about botany that I had to study. And I studied those things, but 90 percent of the stuff that goes on in botany is really boring to me. But the only stuff that was interesting to me, maybe the 10% that I learned and mastered, was the stuff that I needed to know in order to answer my questions about psychedelics, altered states of consciousness, and epistemology. But I was fully conscious of the fact that I would not be able to hold, hold my own in an intelligent conversation with someone who devoted themselves to the study of botany. And I would never set myself up as someone who's learned on this subject. I'm just someone who knows a few things. So. My philosophy is that if you truly follow your curiosities, you're going to stumble upon certain problems that you can't solve unless you get knowledge that uh, – unless you get certain forms of knowledge. And then those new forms of knowledge become, become interesting to you, and so your, your, your curiosities expand. So like math, for instance. I've always hated math ever since I was a kid. It's always been boring to me. But philosophy is very interesting to me, and I'm very interested in philosophical questions about math, such as, do abstract entities exist? Uh, What exactly is a number, and and, and do do numbers occupy some kind of platonic space, or are they just creations of the mind? Now, it's easy to say, oh, that's stupid, here's the answer. But I don't just want to know what someone thinks is the answer. I I actually want to hear the arguments. I want to understand the arguments. And I want to be able to effectively uh, substantiate whatever point of view I subscribe to. So in order for me to really tackle these questions in the way that I want, there are some things I have to know about math. And all of a sudden, there are certain aspects of mathematics that now become interesting to me. But the whole time that I'm studying math – and yeah, so now I've got all these books on math that I'm flipping through. But 90 percent of what constitutes mathematics, I'm ignoring it. I'm dismissing it because I just – I'm just not curious about it. I'm not sincerely interested in it. So everything that I study leaves out a large body of of work that I'm not studying because I'm not interested in. And as long as I don't pretend that I'm an expert in something that I'm not, I I think that's perfectly okay. So, So
0: really your choice of what to read and by extension, what not to read is sort of driven by whatever question you're obsessed with at the moment. Would that be fair?
1: Yeah, and I, and, I, and I would say that for the most part, my questions are reducible to a few basic philosophical questions about the nature of ultimate reality and the scope of human possibility. What, what does it mean to be human? What are we capable of? Um, how do we actualize our potential? Um, what exactly is greatness and how do we achieve it? What is our place in the universe? Um, what makes life meaningful? I would say most of my studies center around my constant process of wrestling with those types of questions
0: and is this do you when you kind of have these rabbit trails okay, so what is you know how can we maximize our potential? I could see that leading to you know, uh, altered states of consciousness might be a way, well, how do you alter your consciousness? And this might lead to, um, finding about hallucinogenics and ethnobotany, et cetera. Is this a process that you sort of are consciously mapping out? Okay, now I'm going to, now I'm going to investigate this branch and then I'm going to investigate this, or is it just sort of, it just kind of all happens on its own in sort of a, uh, you know, chaotic way.
1: It it happens more more organically. It's not like I pick a subject, anthropology, for instance, and decide, oh, I'm sure there must be some connection between anthropology and the development of human potential. I, I know that there is. There has to be. There has to be a connection between all of these things. So I'm sure there's some stuff in music. There's some stuff in anthropology. There's some stuff in geography that can inform me about human potential. But I don't pursue it in that way what what i do is I, I start with my questions i observe certain facts i investigate certain sources and maybe i'll come across an idea so uh, i may come across an idea that looks cool to me and i may i may ask myself well well what is that what what, what subject or field of study does that belong to or you know so so if someone talks about uh, you and i were actually having a conversation and you you were talking about how all of the different species and and ecosystem are connected, and how something that happens in you know in, in one part of the world might affect something or someone in another part of the world. And, and what you what you were saying was interesting, and I thought to myself, well, I need to know more about this because my my passion for understanding human potential has to go beyond the choices of an individual. But I want I want to understand more about. The incentive structures, more about the environmental effects, the sociological effects. And so that's what gave birth to an interest in ecology, in economics, in sociology, not because I felt I ought to be interested in those things, but because I discovered that some of the questions I was asking were... Were being addressed by those fields. And then, then, so I start there and I go, Oh my gosh, like uh, you know, I, uh, ecology sounds pretty fascinating. Let me look up some stuff on that. Or I'll ask some friends for recommendations on that. And I'll flip through some books on that and order a couple and just, just, just dive in somewhere and, and, and keep exploring.
0: So, I mean, in my, my imagination of you, you're going to, you know, the bookstore and you're looking, you, like you go to a shelf and every single book you pick up, you think sounds amazing. Now that can't be the way that it actually goes. I mean, are you just sort of leafing through, okay, here's a section, I'll look at this book, I'll look at this book, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, this one catches my eye. Or does every book truly sound
1: amazing to you? Well, what's interesting about that is I think the more irresponsibly curious you are about the pursuit of knowledge, the, the more everything does become interesting. So if, if you start off by saying, I'm gonna study all the things I think I ought to study in order to be a well-rounded person. I think you'll study a lot of things, you won't have a lot of fun, and who knows how much of that stuff you'll remember since you don't really care about it and you're just trying to be impressive or trying to be well-rounded. But I think if you just start with one set of questions that are intensely interesting, you'll discover very quickly that there are problems you can't solve, questions you can't answer, avenues of thought you cannot uh, traverse if you don't go outside of those questions and get other knowledge, other forms of knowledge. So eventually your your sense of curiosity does expand and, and you have an easier time finding more and more things interesting. So when I was a kid, I didn't find math and physics and geography interesting. But now as an adult, I find them very interesting because I see the connections. But I only see the connections because I've been intensely devoted my curiosity so now i would say the older i get the more i do experience a phenomenon that kind of resembles that where i go into a bookstore and i and i just feel overwhelmed like most of the stuff in there just seems really interesting to me but but even then I, i have certain questions that have a greater sense of urgency or a greater relevance to what i'm going through at that time in my life, that that are my guide as well.
0: In your case, Apart. it's usually the less connected to the present day. The question is, uh, the more interesting.
1: More... <laughs> no, no. So, so on... it, it, it's usually the opposite direction of whatever you want me to read.
0: <laughs> oh man! Um, oh man! On, on your curiosity, is curiosity something that? you have, or you have had to cultivate, or have you just always been relentlessly curious? Because for many people, I mean, I think I'm pretty curious and interested in the world, um, but not at the same level that you are. Many people listening to this, hearing you being like, oh my gosh, I'm just so overwhelmed. There's so many interesting things. I just have to have these questions answered. Every book is fascinating. Every topic, they can't relate to that. They feel like most things don't interest them. Most things seem boring. So Do you think you're just born with curiosity or not? Or do you think you can cultivate that sense of like interest and wonder and curiosity about the world?
1: Hmm. You know, curiosity is like the blob. You ever seen that movie, The Blob? No,
0: it it looked too cheesy. So I didn't I didn't spend the time.
1: Well, this brings me (laughs) to a point that that we often go back and forth about. And maybe we should, should shift the discussion to that. How all of the great cosmic secrets are carefully concealed in uh, horribly produced science fiction movies but uh, you know so, so in, the, in the blob the, the the entity the horrific entity is just this massive blob I don't know it's like jelly or jello or something that the more you feed it the more it consumes the bigger it gets until it eventually, threatens to take over the whole earth, but it starts like a little spill. So maybe a, a jar of jelly falls on the kitchen floor and it's just a small little harmless blob, you know, but, but then if you try to sweep it up, it consumes the broom and now it's a bigger blob and it just grows and grows and grows. I think curiosity is like that. I think we all start with a small little harmless blob of curiosity and we can ignore it. And it will be what it is. Maybe, maybe it will even die out or go away, just dissipate. But if we feed it, the more that curiosity consumes, the more it expands and the more we find the world as a whole to be fascinating. So for me, I don't think I'm naturally curious in all of these things I'm talking about with you. I think that curiosity is the reward for me being devoted to the small set of things I was curious about. And and over time, because I fed into that curiosity, it's expanded.
0: Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. There's sort of that moment where, I mean, I see this with my kids all the time. And my mom used to do to, (laughs) do this to me. Now I do it to them. There's this moment where you have a question. And in that moment, you're kind of captivated by it. And you do the first easiest thing you can do to see if you can find a quick answer. So in the case of my kids, they ask me or, or my wife, Hey, you know, why is X, Y, and Z the case? And if I don't know, um, I will often be excited and be like, Oh, I want them to pursue that question, which by the way, I think is the worst thing to do to your kids. It makes them so uninterested. If you're like, why don't you go look it up when you get home? You can research that today.
1: There's, there's,
0: there's been thousands of books written about it. Philosophers have asked that question. for. That's a great question. Seek it out. Then they're like, oh my gosh, would you leave me alone and stop trying to teach me
1: stuff? Um, hey, that's <laughs> funny because that's what my mom did to me at work, but go ahead. Didn't really
0: see my mom used to do it to me and I hated yeah. it. She'd be like, well, why don't you look it up? And I'd be like, nah, not that interesting.
1: <laughs> so, my kids, well, well, Maybe your mom was actually helping you. Um you know, assign uh, priority to, to the questions you were asking. That, Those that questions really well weren't that be. important that very to well
0: you. It well could be, but, but, but I think there's that moment where all of us have that decision. I'm interested in this. And the answer is not obvious. I tried the easy thing. Do I want to be lazy and just say, eh, probably what everybody else thinks about it is just right. Or probably some expert knows if I really want to know, I can go ask them or probably. And I think entrepreneurship is much the same way. You have an idea and you're like, oh my gosh, that's a brilliant idea. And if you immediately think, yeah, I'm sure somebody else has already done it, or you go look it up and you see that three companies are trying to do it and you say, oh, my idea has been taken. Like that's the moment of choice where you can have the courage and the vulnerability to go pursue something. And maybe you find out at the end of the day that it already has been solved, that your hypothesis was stupid. Maybe you find that that's why it's vulnerable. That's why we don't want to do it, I think, because a little bit of laziness, a little bit of fear that it will turn out um, this moment that was really special to us where we thought we had an epiphany turned out to not be so special. And I think we're kind of afraid of that. And I think I think like every time you say no to those moments and you shut yourself down, it's harder and harder to become a curious person or an entrepreneurial person or a creative person. But every time you say yes to it, like that blob, it continues to expand. So I, I I definitely agree with that. And I really, I actually like that analogy, even though I haven't seen the movie. See, now I don't need to see it. You saw it and you gave me the the tidbit of wisdom from it. So thank you.
1: (laughs) Hey, you know, there's a very wonderful quote. Um, it's in the beginning of the third chapter of Gene Houston's, the possible human. Okay. Do you just know that off the
0: top of your head? You just know what chapter it is, what, book
1: that's I, book. I I can't I can't do that with everything but but I, I love it right you know it, it's it's almost like you telling me statistics you probably memorized the score from the Detroit Lions game last week and you probably know how many yards this person rushed or you know how many interceptions this quarterback yes, threw and it
0: causes and me and great it causes me great pain to carry
1: it is my burden <laughs> okay, so, so, so the quote um, it, it's, I, I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right because I haven't heard the name said uh, Ortega um, Gasset. But here, here's the quote. It says, so many things fail to interest us simply because they don't find in us enough surfaces on which to live. And what we have to do is to increase the number of planes in our mind so that a much larger number of themes can find a plane in it at the same time. So the idea there is that everything is connected and everything is potentially interesting and if something strikes you as boring it's because there's nothing in you that resonates with whatever it is you're observing there's nothing in you that's capable of finding a point of connection with that thing and what you have to do is give attention to your already existing interest your already existing curiosities and as that expands you'll find it much easier for, you know, to, to find that connection b- between you know your, yourself and and all of these things that seem boring. I, I I think the more you learn, the more you give yourself over to your curiosities, the less boring the world becomes. Until eventually, hopefully, maybe the end goal is the world becomes this 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 magical space where where everything is just overwhelmingly interesting, so, overwhelmingly fascinating. And okay. I didn't necessarily say positive, but fascinating.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so quickly how How much would you say you read every week?
1: Uh, I would say, oh man I, w- I would say probably a couple hours a day so maybe ten hours a week but I- I'm such a slacker now compared to how I was maybe ten years ago but I would say on average about ten hours a week um, so given the
0: amount that you consume and especially given what you just said about you know creating these planes in your mind where where everything you encounter becomes interesting to you where you can go to that ridiculous crappy horrible website and and find something in there that's fascinating to you what does this do for your ability to focus and just get shit done i mean what does this do for time management do you feel do you feel overwhelmed all the time like there's just too much there's never enough hours in the day like i even the thought the thought of being So, non discriminating because I found one of the most valuable skills I've developed, which took me a lot of hard work to develop, was the ability to judge really quickly what's worth my time and what's not. And I'm willing to take a pretty high margin of error. I'm willing to admit I'm probably wrong. There are probably plenty of emails I get that warrant a lot more time than I give them, or articles that someone sends me that warrant more than the quick scan I give them to see if it's worth diving in. But to me, the peace of mind I get from having so much more of a clear plate and not feeling that overwhelming sensation, having the time to to sit and do this podcast, uh, for example, and not feel like I'm missing out on so much, that's really important to me. I feel like I wouldn't be able to handle. It's almost like there's a level of curiosity and interest and, and awe in the world that is like overload. It's, it's the, um, my friend, Eric Alston calls it the infocalypse info apocalypse, right? There's just, there's so much. And if you find all of it interesting and you don't have any tools to cut through it, do you feel overwhelmed and you have a hard time managing your time?
1: That's an interesting question. So first, I, I think the concept of distraction, you're not
0: going to, you're not going to admit it. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> you're you're immediately
1: uncomfortable with the implication
0: that some, I, some things should be said no to
1: <laughs> this is so awesome man oh my gosh so awesome well you know what's interesting though to answer that i think the concept of distraction and the corollary idea of focus they both imply a goal there's no such thing as distraction unless there's something, some ideal that I'm being distracted from. And there's no such thing as focus, excluding the unnecessary, unless there's something of vital importance that I'm zooming in on. So in order for a person to be distracted or focused, we have to talk about the goal. What's the goal? So if your goal, for instance, is to be a great mathematician, you might want to reconsider your impulse in the moment to just watch eight hours of basketball clips on YouTube, right? Because, well, that might might not be taking you in the direction you want to go in, even if you find it interesting. So we definitely want to acknowledge the distinction between what's interesting and what's useful, and everything that's interesting isn't useful relative to certain goals. But for me, all of my interests serve my goal. So whether I am watching Michael Jordan commercials or reading a book on ecology, or listening to an, an, episode, an, an episode of the Econ Talk podcast, or reading an article by Jeffrey Tucker, or listening to your podcast. Oh, good. It's I'm so, so
0: glad you threw that in there. I was starting to get nervous. <laughs> you, only, you only listen to the episodes with yourself though, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I fast forward the parts where you're talking and I listen, <laughs> listen to myself in slow motion. <laughs> but you know, okay, let, let me tell you a quick story. Diverge for a moment. A, a story that Really captures the spirit with which I approach the pursuit of knowledge. It, it was a Bible story that gripped my imagination ever since I was was a child, and it's never left me. And so much of how I approach philosophy is is shaped by this. It, it's the story of of Elijah, who was a, a prophet that had the ability to you know for for well he was a prophet so he, he foresaw the, the the future, and there, there was an army that continued to come up with these plots, and he would see through the plots. He would see them ahead of time, and he would tell the other army about their plans so that they could spoil them. So one day, the leader of this army says, surely there is a spy among us. And someone says, there is no spy. It's the prophet Elijah who is able to hear the very secrets you whisper in your bedchamber. And so he issues out an order to kill Elijah. And so this army begins to make its way towards Elijah's dwelling place. And Elijah's servant, Gehazi, sees the army as they approach, and he fears for his life. And he tells Elijah, they're coming for our life. And Elijah says, fear not, for greater is the number of those who are with us than the number of them. And then he prays over his servant, Gehazi, and he says, open his eyes that he might see. And it says, Gehazi's eyes were open and he saw that there were angels encamped about them surrounding this, this army. And in that moment, he knew they were, they were safe. Now, why is this story so important to me? I, I think it's a really great illustration about the relationship between how we perceive reality and the fulfillment, the peace, the hope, the happiness, the freedom that we spend our lives searching for. From Gehazi's point of view, his fear was based on how he perceived reality. He saw reality as a place where an army was coming to take his life. And I would say that his fear was rational. His fear made sense. If you see an army of people coming at you trying to kill you, you ought to be afraid based on what you see. Elijah had a different response than Gehazi. He had a he had a sense of confidence, a sense of assurance, a sense of a, a sense of, you know, peace that Gehazi didn't have. And it wasn't based on him saying affirmations to himself. It wasn't based on him trying to be positive. It was based on the fact that he saw the world differently. He, he literally perceived things differently. Um, where one person saw a threat, he saw the complete opposite of that. And when he was able to transfer what he saw to Gehazi, Gehazi was able to experience what he experienced. To me, that's a meaningful story Whether you believe in the supernatural or not, whether you believe the Bible is an inspired book or not, so much of what we search for in life is significantly affected and altered by the way we perceive reality. And I'm not saying there is this linear relationship between thought and experience that is so exact that whatever you imagine will manifest in the way you imagine it. I'm not advocating that, but I think the relationship is so strong between how we perceive reality how we process the data of experience and how much peace we feel, how much freedom we feel. So often the difference between opportunity is all in how we process information. So for me, when when I when I pursue knowledge, I'm always looking for concepts, for stories, for metaphors, for questions, for assumptions, counterarguments to my beliefs, ways of seeing reality that open new vistas of possibility in my life, ways of seeing reality that give me new options for how I can I can tinker with the way I process data so that I can have more, uh, m- more options for how I react and respond to, to the things that I go through in life. So for me, I'm always studying that one subject. That's always the same subject. Whether I'm reading about economics, anyone who talks to me, anyone who listens to me, anyone who reads what I write knows that if you strip everything away, I'm really a one-dimensional guy. I'm really just interested in one thing. I'm just interested in exploring the possibility of being the predominant creative forces in our own lives. I'm really just interested in exploring the possibility of how far can we push our ability to alter the way we experience reality by tinkering with concepts, by playing around with ideas. That's all I ever do. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if I'm reading math or reading sociology or reading economics, I'm reading it for that one purpose. I'm only interested in that one thing. So for me, I'm never distracted from that. I'm always locked into that.
0: So do you feel stressed? Like you don't have enough time?
1: I I, I don't feel stressed, but I do feel this. I feel like I already know And I'm not even afraid to say these words because I don't think I'm going to regret it. I already know (laughs) that that, that if if I'm fortunate enough to see my death coming, because who knows, it could catch me by surprise. But if I'm fortunate enough to see it coming, I know that one of my greatest regrets will be not having read all the books I wished I could have read. I already know that Whenever I leave here, I'm gonna leave thousands of books left unread, and the thought of that makes me kind of sad. It really does. But that that also makes makes life worth living in a certain kind of way. But I, I do feel a bit sad. I do feel a bit overwhelmed. I do feel a bit stressed by my curiosities, but not in a way that I would ever want to get rid of.
0: All right, I'm gonna get you a couple rapid fire questions, and then we're gonna we're gonna wrap it. So. Uh... You walk into a brick and mortar bookstore today. If I walked with you to Barnes and Noble, what section would you immediately go to?
1: Immediately, I, I think I would go to the economic section.
0: And is that all the time or that's just the phase you're in?
1: Not all the time. That, that's where I'm at right now.
0: Okay. Uh, best book you've read in the last year?
1: Oh my gosh. Uh, Metaphors We Live By, George Lakoff.
0: Worst book you've ever read? Mm. you can't get out of this one by saying every book is good
1: worst book I've ever read oh my gosh let's come back to it give me the next rapid fire it's okay
0: if you want to say that book by Isaac Morehouse I thought I know I know that's (laughs) I know that's
1: your dilemma you didn't want to say it (laughs) I I feel like I feel like there was a pretty bad book that I read in in this past year and I I feel like I may have talked with you about it but I, I just can't remember it right now
0: that's all right um what is one piece of advice you give to somebody who feels like they want to grow their intellectual curiosity and they want to consume more ideas? What's a simple thing they can do to get started?
1: I would say this is one of those areas where the cliche follow your heart really does work. It really does. I would say don't don't try to read what you think you ought to read in order to be a well-rounded intellectual. Just Start with the questions that are important to you. And don't worry about what anyone else thinks of that. So if you're interested in sports, read about sports. If you're interested in fashion, read about fashion. Who cares if all your friends know a whole lot about critical theory or analytic philosophy? Just read what you're interested in because that's the stuff that you'll likely remember. That's the stuff where you'll find all of the interesting connections and insights that no one else can see. And your curiosities will likely expand over time to offer you an opportunity to look at that other stuff in ways that sincerely seem fascinating. So that that would be my advice.
0: Final question. When are you going to finally read all the things I've been recommending to you over the years?
1: I think that might be the regret when I die. <laughs> those are the be, books that's I gonna had in going to be my mind. regret, too. <laughs> my, maybe my last words to you will be, I'm sorry, as the, as the tears rolling down my cheek. I'm sorry, Isaac. I, I now realize that I should have read those books. I would have been twice the man that I am. <laughs> that, was
0: like, that was like the time when I told you, no matter what you do, wait to go with me in the theater to, to see the Lord of the Rings movies in their proper order. I like never saw them and you watched the last one first and didn't understand them. Oh, I never um, Hey, TK, thank you so much for coming on. TK You can find, uh, TK's writings. Uh, he keeps, uh, a kind of a log of things that he's reading and ideas he's exploring there as well. And he also blogs at, um, discoverpraxis.com slash blog TK. It's always a pleasure. Always man. Take it easy. Peace.